0: Listener-supported. WNYC Studios.
1: From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Monday, February 19th. On the death of Alexei Navalny, Donald Trump seems to be playing it kind of like he played the white supremacist rally in Charlottesville in 2017, you know, when he famously said there were good people on both sides. As usual, Trump is not condemning Putin. The Washington Post reminds us this morning that when Navalny was first poisoned by Putin, that was in 2000, while Trump was president, Trump was asked by Navalny to denounce the poisoning, and he did not. Asked by others Trump deflected, saying instead things like, we should focus on China. Now Trump is again saying nothing bad about Putin. Instead, he's comparing himself to Navalny, saying the Biden administration is out to imprison him. Never mind that Trump is facing criminal charges for actual alleged crimes brought by grand juries of his peers, most not even in federal court. Navalny was poisoned, imprisoned, and now apparently murdered for expressing his views. And more than 400, this is just breaking, 400 new arrests are being reported in Russia over the last day of people simply out at vigils for Navalny. Donald Trump is not condemning those arrests. His rival for the Republican presidential nomination, Nikki Haley, said this over the weekend on CNN about Trump's silence regarding Putin. The problem is anybody that can't call out a dictator. That's a problem. You know, he should be calling, not just calling Putin out for what happened to novany He should be calling Putin out for the fact that he's got Evan gersovich as a hostage. He should be calling Putin out for invading Ukraine. He should be calling Putin out for the fact that now they are surrounding the Baltics and Putin's getting ready for his next act. Never mind that she mispronounced Navalny as Nalvani, will forgive her that, Nikki Haley on CNN, she did do it multiple times. One other ominous intersection between Trump's and Putin's latest authoritarian moves, though, Trump is claiming in court that he could have his political rivals assassinated while president and be immune from prosecution for it. We've played this clip before. This is an exchange, an actual exchange between a federal appeals court judge and a trump attorney on this question the questions are coming from the bench a few weeks ago could, could a president order seal team six to assassinate a political rival that's an official act in order to seal team six
0: he, he would have to be and would speedily be you know uh, uh, impeached and convicted before the criminal but prosecution
1: if but if he, he weren't there would be no criminal prosecution no criminal liability for that Chief
0: Justice's opinion in Marbury against Madison and uh, uh, and our constitutional tradition and the plain language of the impeachment judgment clause all clearly presuppose that what the founders were concerned about was not. I asked a you game. a
1: yes no yes or no question. Could a president who ordered SEAL Team Six to assassinate a political rival who was not impeached, would he be subject to criminal prosecution?
0: If he were impeached and convicted first, and so, so, so your answer is, is no. Is, My answer is qualified, yes.
1: So, very qualified. That was January 9th, Judge Florence Pan of the Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit and Trump attorney John Sauer saying only if he is impeached and convicted first. And we know for the foreseeable future, it appears there will be enough of a Trump wing in the Senate to avoid that, with the two-thirds majority of the Senate needed to remove a president from office. So if Trump wins that case, which is now in front of the Supreme Court, he, like Putin, would be able to assassinate political rivals with no criminal charges, and he is explicitly asking the Supreme Court of the United States to allow him to do it. So there is not just a Russian context for the death of Alexei Navalny, but a U.S. and global one, too. With me now, Idris Kalun, Washington Bureau Chief for The Economist. He has two relevant articles in the last week called National Conservatives are Forging a Global Front Against Liberalism and The Growing Peril of National Conservatism, published on the day before Navalny's death became known. Idris, thanks for coming on. Welcome back to WNYC.
0: Great. Thank you for having me.
1: We'll get to your big picture take on national conservatism and what ties Trump and Putin and others together right now and the peril that you see in that. But first, on the death of Navalny, do you see world leaders dividing up into pro-Putin and anti-Putin camps?
0: You know, on the whole, the mood has been condemnatory of of Navalny's death. Um, You see that in America as well, where uh, President Biden blamed Vladimir Putin for uh, Navalny's death and said that no one should be um, fooled, uh, of course, to give the context. Uh, uh, he was poisoned by Novichok uh, nerve agent, uh, probably at the behest of Russian agents. Um, and even in the Republican primary, you've seen Nikki Haley um, basically echo that and say that, that Putin is responsible. But Donald Trump has been fairly silent. Um, he hasn't said anything condemning uh, Navalny's death Um, And that is something that Haley is is attacking him for at the moment. But, you know, we don't know uh, whether or not he will say anything in the past. You know, if you remember back to that moment in Helsinki where he sat, he stood next to Vladimir Putin and said that he trusted his assessment over his own spy agencies. uh, Trump has been consistently uh, hesitant to criticize Vladimir Putin. And it seems like he's choosing this moment um, as well to be circumspect.
1: Yeah. Well, what do you make of what Trump is doing, trying to say that he's a victim of his government like Navalny was in Russia without denouncing Putin it's kind of good people on both sides isn't it uh
0: it's a, it's certainly a bit of that i mean to look trump can complain about the prosecutions that he is enduring but to uh compare himself to a man who uh was poisoned uh then uh sentenced to the gulag for 19 years then ultimately died there i think is uh is a bit beyond the pale even even for uh, past comparisons so um you know it, this is but this is also not a total shock to to many people right given his history given even the comments uh last week that that he gave where he said that not only would he um not defend NATO allies that had not met their two percent GDP defense commitments, but that uh, he would encourage Russia if they invaded to 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 go for it. Really, right. I mean that is that is beyond what any kind of normal presidential candidate, uh, Democrat or Republican, would have would have uttered.
1: And um, this this I'm like Navalny. I mean, it's not just Trump saying it on social media. I say there, are, I see there are other Republicans. Lee Zeldin is one. I saw a reported uh, former congressman from New York, the Republican gubernatorial. candidate Candidate in New York in 2022, Lee Zeldin, and other Republicans echoing that and saying Trump is like the Navalny of the United States. How far do you think that's going to get as Washington bureau chief?
0: Um, Look, I I think there are many uh, um, you know voters who are going to look that favorably on that comparison. I think it is kind of the most outrageous thing that could be said about Navalny's death, it is it is kind of fundamentally solipsistic right it's it's not it it uh, changes the emphasis to um not the plight of this man nor the plight of democracy in russia which is i think an incredibly sad uh story but it, it changes it back to well look at me look at how persecuted i am and again look from his perspective i understand why you would complain about judges and prosecutors and whatnot but to to argue that uh that there is any kind of comparison between between these two people i think is uh, is is plainly outrageous
1: there was as you know a major conference of western leaders over the weekend called the munich security conference the new york times article on it this morning begins by saying as the leaders of the west gathered in munich over the past 3 days putin had a message for them nothing they've done so far sanctions condemnation attempted containment would alter his intentions to disrupt the current world order. I'm curious if you think, Idris, that the murder of Navalny, assuming it was murder ordered by Putin, was time to break on Friday, specifically to thumb his nose at all the countries attending that conference.
0: Look, that's uh, you know plausible. Um, it is also the case that Russia is going to have a presidential election in a few weeks, um, in which the result is obviously preordained. Vladimir Putin will win another term. Um but that, you know, the death of Navalny signifies and uh, kind of it extinguishes the kind of dissent within Russia, which is all which had already been heavily, heavily limited, um as, you know, as, as repressive as Russia was before the war in Ukraine, it's become even more so afterwards. And even now at this moment, uh, Russian police are arresting anyone who expresses sympathy for uh, Navalny. People who um, have photos in their backpack of Navalny are being arrested by police. People who are leaving flowers and makeshift memorials are being arrested by police. So this I think could also be interpreted as a show of complete control ahead of the Russian elections. Um, but to his point that, um, you know, he's on the ascendancy, um, I think that there are, there are some credible points there, right? Republicans in Congress here have lost the will to fund Ukraine any further. Uh, Ukraine just lost a, a major city, um, uh, had to give it up to, to Russia. They blamed the lack of artillery uh, for that loss. You know, it could be the case that Russia pushes even further. Um, and sanctions and and the other tools that the West has kind of arrayed against him, they've, they've certainly stalled him. But... They haven't, you know, changed his calculus, and so I think that that is there's a reason why the mood in Munich was uh, was quite gloomy.
1: The Times goes on to say, warnings about Mr. Putin's possible next moves were mixed with Europe's growing worries that it could soon be abandoned by the United States, the one power that has been at the core of its defense strategy for seventy-five years. It reminds us Trump had famously said last week that if Europe didn't spend more toward its own defense, as the NATO treaty calls for, he would encourage Putin to attack. You cited this a minute ago. So are the European countries now pledging to meet that obligation of two percent of their economies on defense, as Trump has been pushing them to do ever since he was president?
0: You know, the Germans just announced that they were hitting 2% of, of GDP uh, in defense spending. And, um, you know, over his presidency, uh, Trump's threats were effective. I think you have to say that in getting European countries to actually increase their defense spending. If you look at the, the data, you see a pretty marked increase over the time that he's president, that there is this kind of fear that, um, that, uh, that there would be a penalty and that for free riding. Um, but Trump's view of NATO is just starkly different from what a kind of alliance-oriented view would actually have you say. So Trump sees this as a contract where if you pay your 2%, you get protection. It's a bit like a like a racket. Um, and that is a, a transactional uh, understanding of NATO. It is one that sees um, America as providing a service, um, and it, it makes, I think, a few mistakes. One is that... Um, You know, the NATO alliance is also good for America um, in a way that Trump doesn't seem to fully grasp or understand. But to to your question about what the Europeans are doing, I mean, there there's always been discussion about a European army, Ursula von der Leyen, the head of the European Commission. Said that there would be interest in maybe European spending on on defense collectively. Uh, that's something that traditionally hasn't happened before. There are moves towards um, thinking about what Europe could do, what NATO members could do without America um, at the core. But um, you know, Trump's election would only, if it happened, would only be nine months from now. So it's it's actually it's actually not that much time if if you're Europe and having to to deal with this uh, this very. I, I would say almost existential question.
1: Let me touch uh, one more thing before we run out of time. Um, also at the Munich Security Conference this weekend, another big topic was Israel and Gaza. And the pr- president of Israel, Kaim Herzog, and the prime minister of the Palestinian Authority, uh, Mohammed Shdaya, um were both at the conference Herzog said the hostages are his number one concern right now. The Palestinian Prime Minister, Shteya, said this.
0: Our top priority now is to end the uh, aggression against our people, to end the war, and also to allow international aid to get into Gaza. But also what is more important is... A political solution not only for Gaza but for all of Palestine that does material and a two state reality where countries do recognize Palestine as a state and Palestine will be admitted as a member state to the United Nations.
1: Palestinian Prime Minister Mohammed Staya to the news organization C G T N Idris, do you see a Western coalition of any kind pressuring both Israel directly and Hamas through Qatar and Saudi Arabia, maybe to end this war in some way?
0: I mean, there is already pressure um, on Israel and particularly warning against an invasion of a ground invasion of Rafah, which is where uh, more than a million Palestinians are now have fled to and are living in, in camp cities. So, you know, the, the leaders of Canada and Australia have said that uh, Emmanuel Macron, the French president, um, said that invading Rafah would be a grave violation of international law. And, and Biden has not gone so far as that. But he has said that he had warned publicly that Israel shouldn't should invade Rafah and and, uh, and avoid that and that there needs to be a plan. America has not gone as far as other countries in saying that there ought to be a ceasefire. But they are um, negotiating very strenuously with the Qataris, with the Egyptians to get a deal in in place that would, um, you know, hopefully resolve some of these issues. They're they're, America publicly is committed to to state solution. The problem is that, you know, Hamas is not Uh, Hamas still at its core says that it aims for the elimination of the Jewish state. And Netanyahu is not. Um, And that is a that is an issue. He is he is cautioned uh, against um, uh, you know, uh, recognition of Palestinian statehood. He has said that that would be a reward for October seventh if that were to happen. Um, so that is a that that is the, the hurdles that that America faces. And right now, you know, as much as Joe Biden did his best um, to kind of embrace the Israelis after the horrific attack, um, tensions between him and Netanyahu are extremely high. Um, and so that is not a, a great relationship uh, at the moment.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, Biden, we keep hearing, and this is for you as Washington bureau chief covering the presidential campaigns. Biden is getting increasingly fed up with Netanyahu's refusal to protect civilians more while fighting Hamas. Biden might not accept the word genocide, but he does increasingly believe and articulate that what Israel is doing in Gaza is horrific. And now there are reports in this country of Arab Americans in the swing state of Michigan saying they won't vote for Biden in November because he's not different enough from Trump on Gaza. So Biden needs to be punished to make sure there's at least one party that cares about them. Also, NBC News reported this weekend on the reproductive justice movement now fracturing over the harm to thousands of pregnant women and new mothers in Gaza that the U.S. isn't doing anything about as they see it. And some of those activists say they won't vote for Biden, even though he's nominally pro-choice, because reproductive justice is more than just access to abortion. So I'm, I'm curious how much you see at this point the politics of Gaza, if not the morality as Biden sees it, affecting what he might do next on this war.
0: Well, I think you can see that the Biden campaign is concerned about um, this abandoned Biden movement among uh, some Muslim Americans. The campaign has sent um, several kind of high level folks to Michigan to meet with uh, Muslims there and to speak with them. Sometimes they've you know, they've kind of turned that down. They've, they've said, we don't want to meet with you, but they're devoting some amount of attention to it, which suggests to me that that they do actually worry about the consequences of of this i mean on the whole it's true that americans uh don't really kind of factor foreign policy into their voting decisions particularly if there aren't troops involved as is the case in ukraine and as is the case in israel um but obviously to some americans to arab americans muslim americans even who aren't arab and have family there but feel a kind of kinship with the palestinians um this issue matters a lot and you know i think we can question whether or not um you know, voting, uh, abandoning Biden is, is cutting off one's nose despite one's face. But, um, the anger is, is quite real. It's quite palpable. Um, I know that, uh, from my own family and my own family friends, but, um, you know, the Democrats, I think do have to, do have to deal with it. I mean, what Biden has moved closer and closer to criticizing Israel. He said that, um, their actions in Gaza were over the top. Uh, that was a direct quote that, that he gave. But for a lot of Muslims, they see the fact that, you know, America is still sending artillery, still sending ammunition, um, you know, not calling for a ceasefire. And, and they say that, you know, talk is cheap, but action is different. So um, I, I think it could be an issue. Obviously, Michigan is an incredibly important swing state. But, um, you know, we have a, few, a, a lot of months between now and November. So uh, things could also change.
1: Idris Kalun, Washington Bureau Chief for The Economist. His article out the other day, National Conservatives are Forging a Global Front Against Liberalism, and one called The Perils of National Conservatism. Thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it a lot.
0: Great. Thank you so much.
1: Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.